0: Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 15. Good morning. Doing all right? All right, good. Two of you, awesome, great. So at 8 o'clock this morning, we we met, uh, we meet every every Sunday morning at 8 as a staff to pray together and, and ask God to bless the day and go over the schedule and all that kind of stuff. And this morning, um, as often happens, Teresa had her granddaughter with her and so I was watching this little little child and, you know, she's recently learned to walk in the last, I don't know, 8 months, 10, 10 whatever, my horrible times and... So she was at the window, and then she would turn, and she'd come over to the table, and then she'd go back to the window. And God just reminded me that we're supposed to have faith like a child. But we're not supposed to stay as a child. You know, we oftentimes want to have faith like a child, which we should. That's, that's basically trust in God, saying, God, you're able to do exceedingly abundantly all and more than we could ever ask or imagine, but that's not where God wants us to stay. Nobody wants their child to stay a toddler. They wouldn't live that way, right? Right? Too much, right? We want them to mature. We want them to grow. We want them to be able to be self-sufficient, all those kind of things. And, you know, as a follower of Jesus, the goal was for you and I to have faith like a child, but to mature in our faith. And what I want to talk about to you today Is what it looks like to be mature in our faith. Now, oftentimes, we think that mature means smart. We think that knowledge equals maturity, and it doesn't. It is possible for us to be really, really smart and really, really immature. See, smart doesn't equal mature. Obedience equals mature. So, many, many believers, I think have a a half-baked maturity because they know what to do They just don't do it. Now, I'm not casting stones at anybody else because I'm really just looking at the mirror. I want to make sure that my life is in complete obedience to what God wants for me. And I can tell you this, I can be super-duper smart and I can explain all of the theologies that I need to explain, but if I'm not walking in simple obedience to what God has said for me to do, then my faith is incomplete and I'm really immature. And so this morning, my question to you is this, what does a mature believer look like? Well, I believe a mature believer looks like Jesus, because Jesus is what the Father looks like. And in its basic form, a believer looks like Jesus, does what Jesus does, loves what Jesus loves, says what Jesus says. He's simply a reflection of the one that we choose to follow. And so, this morning, the question is, why, or rather what, does Jesus look like? What's, what's basic in obedience to him? And I want to answer that by answering five questions about God. Five questions about God. And that's predicated on this idea or, 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 or this, this thought. Why would we go to the ends of the earth to talk about Jesus when we have enough lost people in Gulf Breeze to spend every waking hour Why would we care about people, some strange place where we don't even know how to spell it, we don't know what it's like? Why would we do that? Why would we spend the money? Why would we spend the time? What is it that would cause us to go that far when we could really just stay here and work our entire lives and still not reach everybody? Well, there's five questions about God that answer that one question. Let me start by telling you a story, though. There's a young man by the name of William Borden. Now, you know the last name because it's the Borden Company that you probably drank their milk this morning. William Borden, at the age of 16, was a multi-millionaire, probably a billionaire, because he was heir to the Borden uh, Riches. But at 16, he heard the voice of God and he heard God's call in his life not to pursue business but to pursue the proclamation of the gospel, the good news. And then he went into college and he had this burden that was even more heavily impressed upon him. And then at the age of 24, he left for India and after only four months, he died on the field. His Bible was shipped back with the small amount of goods that he owned. And in his Bible, it was read this phrase. No regrets. No reserves. And the question is, what did he mean by that? No regrets. No reserves. And there's actually another no, and I can't remember what it is. Anybody happen to know that? Okay, look it up. Huh? I'll go, yeah, Google it. Somebody Google it. My mind just went on a vacation right there. But here's, here's the idea. He said, look, I have given everything for the sake of the task of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. And I have no regrets. And I have no reserves about it. And the reason for that is because he was mature in his faith and understood God's calling to him, and I would say to you and to me. There was another man by the name of William Carey in the late 1700s. He is known as the father of modern missions. William Carey, by all accounts, was a brilliant man. He taught himself multiple languages, and yet God stirred inside of his heart this desire so that all the nations would hear the gospel. And this desire would not rest inside of him. It had to come out. He actually wrote a very intelligent treatise on world missions and why God wanted to use believers to take the gospel to the heathens. And one famous moment as he was presenting this paper to a group of pastors, one pastor, Dr. Ryland Sr., stood up and said, Young man, sit down. If God wanted to reach the nations, he will do it without your help or mine. This was a senior pastor who fundamentally did not understand God's call to us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The irony about this is that that Ryland Sr.'s son, Dr. Ryland Jr., actually went with William Carey to take the gospel across the ends of the earth. They started Baptist World Missions Movement. And so the question is this. Why would we take the gospel so far when we have lost people at home? Well, that's a great question. There are five questions about God that answer this bigger question. The first question is this. What is God's heart? Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, we see a glimpse into God's heart, but here's what we should know. This is not the only place where we get a glimpse of God's heart. We actually get a glimpse of God's heart in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2, and in Genesis chapter 3, because there's this scarlet thread throughout all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation that explain and reveal the heart of God. And the heart of God is very simple. To seek and save that which was lost In this story in Luke 15, the Bible says this. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining. Imagine that. Religious people complaining. Imagine that. The church folk were complaining. Well, what were they complaining about? They were complaining because this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Do you see what they were doing? They were saying, we are righteous because we are church folks. You are unrighteous because you are sinners and you are tax collectors. Therefore, we are better than you because we know God. You are far from God. And yet they did not offer any bridge at all to them. It was the us versus them, and we're perfectly content with you staying where you are and with us staying where we are. And Jesus totally shattered that whole ideology. He said this. Jesus said, let me tell you a parable, verse 4. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses simply one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? And when he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I found my lost sheep. I tell you the truth, in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous religious people who don't need repentance. This reveals the heart of God. The heart of God is for those who are far from God. So if we want to be like Jesus, if we want to be like God, our hearts have to be for those Who are far from God. Now, notice that it doesn't say what nationality they are. Notice it doesn't say what proximity to us they are. Notice it doesn't give us instructions on how to do it here. What this is revealing is this at the end of the day, what God cares about more than anything else is rescuing those who are far from Himself, predominantly or entirely those who are sinners and tax collectors. And so the question is what's on the heart of God? The lost. Those who need to be rescued, those who need to be saved. In fact, I love this passage because what the Bible says is this. He says there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who comes home. Notice what it does not say. There's joy in heaven when a great sermon is preached. There's joy in joy in heaven when a great band is on stage. There's joy in heaven when a a church house is full of people. There's joy in heaven when people know theology to the point where they can describe all of the mysteries of God. That's not what gets heaven excited. Now, don't get me wrong. That's important, right? These things are important. We should be theologically secure. We, We should have knowledge. We should understand as much as we can. But listen, the very simple nature of the gospel is this. The lost need to be saved. God loves sinners. Sinners are those who are condemned apart from God. And God has come to seek and matter of fact, in Luke chapter 19, that's exactly what the story says. In Luke chapter 19, you know the story. It's the story of Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree. Come on, do it with me. He climbed up in the sycamore tree because the Lord he wanted to see, right? So this is the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Zacchaeus was very wealthy because he was was, uh, taking money from his people and he was putting it in his own pocket and the government was okay with that because they got a piece of it as well. He was despised. And yet he heard this Jesus was coming through town. And so being a wee little man, he climbed up onto a tree. And he was in the branches kind of looking over to see Jesus passing by. And when Jesus passed by, even though there were hundreds of people around him, he said, Stop, Zacchaeus, here's what he essentially said, Zacchaeus, I see you and I see that you're curious about me. So come on down and take me to your house and let's have dinner. And by the way, I want you to invite all of your sinful friends. And the crowd, the Bible records, the crowd is like, (gasps) he eats with sinners. Like they didn't know this already, right? I mean, just four chapters earlier, he ate with sinners and yet he's doing it again. What kind of Jesus is this? Zacchaeus comes down, he says, Lord, listen, If I've cheated anybody, I'm going to repay them way more than I've cheated from them. If I've done anybody wrong, I'm going to make everything right. Listen to what he was saying. He was saying, I am a sinner. You are righteous and I am am repentant for what I've done. And Jesus said to this man, salvation has come to your house today. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save, say it with me, that which was lost. So what's the heart of God? The heart of God is to seek and save that which is lost. And so the second question, what is the heart of God? Second question, what is the plan of God? Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. By the way, what is written in William Borden's Bible was no reserves no retreats, no regrets. I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm not going to stop pursuing. I'm not going to retreat. And I'm not going to regret one ounce of spending my life on the proclamation of the gospel. Revelation chapter, what did I say? Yes, Revelation 5. Y'all now see how my mind works, right? You do not want to be inside of that thing. Revelation chapter 5, actually I said 5, I shouldn't have, Revelation chapter 7, my bad. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, what is the plan of God? Here is the plan of God. Now I want you to imagine being in this passage. I want you to. This is a vision, so so I want you to picture this. It's very descriptive, right? Use your imagination and just let the words paint this picture for you. It says after this, I looked and there was a mass multitude, a vast multitude, from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, which no one could number. So in other words, as far as the eye could see, there were people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe. That means there were black and white and yellow and orange and green and whatever it was. That means every language, every single space on the whole earth had a representative in God's presence. What were they doing? They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. "'They were clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, "'and they cried out together in one loud voice, "'Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb.' "'And the angels stood around the throne, "'and along with the elders and the four living creatures, "'they fell face down before the throne, and they worshipped God, saying, "'Amen.'" Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the picture of God's plan. Now what you need to know is this is the fulfillment of what God started in Genesis chapter 11. See, when God created Adam and Eve, He created them to be, they were His family Yet Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil rather than choosing God. And because they chose the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there was a separation between them and God. Whereas once they were able to walk with God and know God, now there was a barrier between them. And yet God, the very next chapter, redeems that and he says, look, I'm going to provide a way for you to know me. But if you travel through just the next few chapters of Genesis, what you find is that the people spoke one language and together they said, you know what? We don't need God anymore. Kind of sounds like today, doesn't it? In fact, chapter 11, is, 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 it, 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 it peaks at this idea of the Tower of Babel. They built this tower to get to the heavens because they didn't need God anymore. And God said, no, that's not what I created you for. I didn't create you to live without me. I created you to live with me as part of my family. So he reached down and he, he busted up the tower. And that began the nation's. I just went like way fast through that, okay? You have to go back and look at it. But that's where nations came from. Up until that point, there was one people. And so when the nations were started, the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 12, begins God's process of rescuing the nations with his story. And so in Genesis 12, God began the process of finding people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And we're still doing that today. That's what we're doing today. Because in Genesis or in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, one day all nations will be together in one spot before the Lamb, worshiping Him with one voice. Does that make sense? So God's heart is for the lost. God's plan is that the lost from every tongue, tribe, and nation will one day be in His presence, worshiping Him together as one family. Now here's the third question. What is God's punishment? So Revelation chapter 20, we find the bad news. Revelation 20 gives us this understanding of what is to come for all people. Not just for the unbelievers, but also for the believers. Revelation 20 verse 11 says this. Then I saw a great white throne. Remember, imagine this. This is, this is a, a vision that John, the revelator, was, was, was saw. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from His presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were open, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were then thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Here's the truth of God's word. Now listen. There's only three options. Either God is a liar, the Bible is not true, or this is real. Because this is what the scripture says. And by the way, you and I have no right to believe part of the Bible and not all of it. We don't have the right to pick and choose like a smorgasbord or like a buffet what our taste buds will allow and what it doesn't. The Bible clearly says there is a lake of fire, which is the second death. And the Bible clearly says that there are two options. Your name is either written in the Lamb's book of life or it is not. Now, what is the Lamb's book of life? It's the book for those who have placed their faith in the Lamb, Jesus. So, when you place your faith in Christ... You are sealed with the Holy Spirit and your name is written down in heaven. Tim Keller died this past week, a week, I guess, a week ago, a week and a half ago. But a week or so before his death, now if you don't know Tim Keller, theologian, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in uh, New York City, just a man of God influencing God's kingdom tremendously for the last 40, 50, 60 years. But a week or so before he death, he had a conversation with John Piper, according to John Piper. And Piper said this. He said, you know, Tim Keller said to me that I am more comforted by a single verse of Scripture than anything else. He said in Luke chapter 10, Jesus said, don't rejoice that you have authority over the enemy. Instead, rejoice that your name is found written in the book of life. In other words, I'm not excited because of all the power I have on earth. I'm not excited because of all that God does through me. I'm not excited because all that all that I can do for the kingdom. I'm excited because I've been written in the Lamb's book of life. So it's not about what you've done. It's about who has accepted you. So I have a feeling that in Revelation 20, when we stand before God and God says, Hey, what have you done? The only answer that's really worth much is this. I have trusted in Jesus Christ. And I just kind of imagine, because I'm a visual person, that this little guy steps up on a stool behind a podium, and there's a book opened up, and he goes, Spoonie Burger, Spoonie Burger, Spoonie Burger. Where'd you get that name? (laughs) He goes, oh, are you Jeff? Your name is here. And he takes out a pen, and he marks present. And he says, welcome in. Now, that's just in my brain. I'm I'm, I'm sure it's not going to happen that way, but there is a book of life. And the punishment for those whose names are not found in the book of life, according to the Bible, is the lake of fire. So what do we know? We know God's heart is for the lost, for the sinners, those who are far from God. We know that God's plan is that one day people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will be together Worshipping God. Now it doesn't say everyone from every tongue, tribe, and nation. It says peoples from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And the number of people as far as the eye can see. So we don't know the number, but we just know that it's not everybody. We know that there is punishment for those who haven't had a relationship with Jesus, therefore giving them a name in the Lamb's Book of Life. But we also have a question of what is God's provision. So if we know that punishment for the law for the, for sin is real what is god's provision for sin say it with me for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life that word perish is the second death For God so loved the world. His provision is to send His only begotten Son. Now here, at this point, sometimes believers in the room will go, Man, I know that. I've been learning that since Sunday school. Well, then what are you doing about it? Okay, great, you know it. Super, you got the wisdom, you got the knowledge. What are your feet doing? What is your mouth doing with what you know? Because if you know and you don't do, then you're a clanging cymbal. You're an empty basket. Faith without works is dead. It's worthless. It's pointless. I do believe that we're going to stand before the Father and I think He's going to ask us, okay, your name's found in the Lamb's book of life, but the Scripture also tells us, now what did you do with what you know? I don't care that you know Greek. I don't care... That you've been faithful in church attendance. I don't care that you're a great singer. I don't care that you taught Sunday school. What I want to know is, did you bring anyone with you? Are you alone or have you come with a crowd? That's a little misnomer because we can't control what somebody else does. But what we do know is that there is power in the gospel and it is virtually impossible for you to speak of Jesus and the word of God not to penetrate people's hearts. I believe fully that we're going to be standing before the Father one day. There's going to be people that we thought weren't listening at all and they're going to step up and say, Jeff, I want to say thank you because I didn't trust then. But long time later after I heard, somebody else told me and somebody else told me. And I'm here today because of that. I just believe that there are some people that we talked with last week. We'll never know until we're standing before Jesus. But I have a feeling that that some of them are going to say, you know what, we're here today. Because as a church, you chose to go and make disciples. So what's the fifth question? The fifth question that we have is this. What is God's command? What is God's command? Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28 gives us God's command. Now, the temptation is to think that this is only for the 12 or 11 disciples. But I don't think that's true. And here's why. Because everything about Jesus' life was pointing towards This heartbeat of God. And if it was only for the 12 disciples, did did Jesus intend for it to stop with them? That makes no sense. Not only that, but what is a disciple? A disciple is a learner. So we do ultimately what Jesus did. And what did Jesus do? He came to seek and save that which was lost. So Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. Now, to get to verse 18, we got to know this. Up in verse 16, we know that Jesus sent the disciples to a place. He essentially said this Hey, guys, listen. At this time tomorrow, I want you to meet me on this mountain in Galilee. And when we meet together, I'm going to share with you some things that I don't want you to forget. Notice he didn't tell them there. He said, Look, tomorrow there's an appointed time and appointed place. I want you to go there. And when I get there, I want you to be ready to hear, and I want you to be ready to take in what I tell you. So it was almost like he was saying, prepare yourself to hear what you're going to hear. So in verse 18, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In other words, I am God. I created the heavens and the earth, I spoke all these things into existence. I am the Word made flesh. So I have all authority in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. There is no one greater than me. So what I say is most important for you to know. He says, therefore, since I am God, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. He was referring to what's going to happen with his plan. He was saying, listen, the way that I'm going to fulfill my plan is through you. You are a critical piece in fulfilling the plan of God. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You ever think that sometimes we want the last part of that verse without taking on the first part? We want God to be with us. We pray and ask God for all kinds of stuff. God, would you, would you let me feel better God, would you open up doors for this opportunity at work? God, would you help me to to find the right mate? God, would you help me with this? But think about it. All of those things are praying. I'm not saying they're wrong, but those are really childlike prayers. Me, me, me. God, bless me. God, give me. God, help me. God, God, I need you. There's nothing wrong with that. We should pray for those things. But could you imagine being so selfish that you only cared about you and nobody else? And listen, I say that, and that sounds so harsh, but the truth is, so many believers, that is their life. It is all about me, my church. It's about me, what I get, what I feel, what what I receive. It's not about you. It's about me. The music isn't good. I'm going to go somewhere else because I like the music better. I like the preaching better. I like the the, the service better. I like the people better. Listen, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. What I want doesn't matter. The Bible says that I've died to myself. And everything that I would consider anything in my life, I consider it but dung. That's what Paul says. He literally says, it is a pile of dung. That's being nice. My life is nothing and I serve at the pleasure of my king. Now listen, don't hear what I'm not saying. We should pray, God bless me. We should pray, God help me. God, I need you. We should pray those things, but not at the expense of God. Would you make your name great to the ends of the earth through me and whatever you need me to do, I am there. God, I will will sacrifice, I will give, I will go. The pain that I have is all worth it because you died to redeem men and women from all nations, all tongues, all tribes, all peoples. What would happen if believers stopped looking in the mirror and started looking at Jesus? The world would hear. The problem... It's not the harvest, folks. The problem is the, it's the people of God. All over this country, we have believers who think that they're the center of God's story, and they're not. Jesus is the center of God's story. And I can tell you this. Just be real honest with you. My body was beaten the last couple of weeks. I'm t- and, and Tim can testify. Now, the young guys, they have no idea what we're talking about. They're sleeping all over the place without any. Li- literally, we had three hours of sleep at best per night. Now, you go for two weeks with three hours of sleep, and when you travel four days to get where you're going just to start, and when you're 48 years old, and we all know that Tim's older than that, when, when, we, when we get to, listen. My shoulder has been hurting for a week and a half. Like it, it is this constant, like we, we talked on a phone yesterday, Tim, and we both agreed that we feel like we've been beaten up by a mob of gangsters, put into a laundry mat and rolled around and we're thinking, I'm too old for this stuff. And then we remember, <laughs> that is a but a but a small price to pay because worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Jesus deserves the reward of His suffering. Our suffering is nothing compared to what He endured to save me, to rescue me, to redeem me. So anything that I could give for His name's sake is nothing It pales in comparison to the goodness and to the glory of God. I want to tell you about my friend Ben. Ben is in his early to mid-30s. Ben got a degree from a university in Texas in the oil and gas field as an engineer. Which means he was easily pulling in a quarter of a million dollars for him and his family right out of the gate. This company, the oil and gas company, was sending him all over the world to discover the new reserves of fuel. And, and he got treated to the high life of hunting trips on big game preserves. And he got wined and dined and had comfort and first class and business class flying there. And yet he, heard the gu- he did that for 10 years and yet God was nagging him. God wouldn't, wouldn't shut up. God kept saying, I'm calling you. And he laid down his life. And his wife laid down her life. And their children laid down their comfortable, easy, upper middle class life. And said, for the sake of the gospel, I will go and I will give my life. So that maybe someone will believe the message. And they are now living in a place that is truly the end of the earth. I can tell you this, we saw the Pakistan border from where we were standing. There was no road to get there. And yet, Ben said, it's worth it. Worth every bit of it because he understood those five questions about God. Now, here's my charge to you and to me Will we yield to maturity? Will we step into God's basic plan for every disciple of Jesus? There is nobody exempt. If you are a disciple, then this is what God has called you to do. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that everybody in this room sells all they have and goes to the field. That's not what it means. Because there are different roles that we play. Yesterday, I was at a graduation party and. I talked to this, this young lady. She's about that tall. And she, was, she had just come to the party when everybody else had been there a while. And, and I discovered that the reason she was, was late was because she was a... I can't even remember the name of it. A coxswain. Which means she sat on a little teeny tiny seat at the end of a boat. And she called out the directions so that eight guys in a row... Could, could row their boat gently down the stream. They were merrily, merrily, merrily. Life was but a dream. So she sat on this little thing, and she would call out left, right, stroke, or whatever in the heck she called. And I, and I was so intrigued by this, and I said, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that you don't row at all? She goes, no, I sit on the end of the boat, and I call out the instructions. Wait a minute, you mean those guys are doing all the work? All you're doing is sitting there talking? She goes, Yes. I said, Well, can't they do that themselves? She goes, No. Because it takes one person whose sole job is to call the commands if that boat is going to race and if that boat is going to win. Every single person on the right, with a right handed uh, paddle and a left handed paddle, they all have to be working together. The right handed paddle can't go, Hey, I'm not a left handed paddle. You're no good. No, they all have to understand their place and their purpose and they have to work together so that they can run the race or row the race that they were called to do. Listen, in this room, that's exactly what it is. Not all of us look the same in terms of how we do it, but all of us need to be in the boat. All of us. Need to be in the boat, or at least all of us need to be a part of the boat, because there are people who have to prepare the boat and all that kind of stuff. You get the point, right? What if, what if God's promise to be with us to the ends of the age was only for those who made disciples of all nations? That's what a mature believer looks like. So again, get smart. Be faithful. All of these, you do all these things. But you gotta put feet to your faith. You have to. Because if you don't, you're just a clanging symbol. This morning I, I wonder, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Do you know Jesus? Not do you know Jesus. I don't know about him, but do you know Jesus? If you're watching by way of Facebook or TV, do you know Jesus? Today, won't you yield to him? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your kindness, for your goodness. Father, I pray that with the simplicity of a child, we would mature into understanding the most basic command that you gave us as your people. To go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Lord, not at the expense of our neighbors, not at the expense of our family. God, it's not an either or, it's a both and. Help us to have your heart for the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in just a minute, I've got a really cool surprise for you, but we're going to go ahead and give you a chance to respond to what God might have been saying to you. The question is, what is your part in God's plan for the nations? Now, you might just say, I don't know. That's a great place to be as long as your I don't know is a... But if I did, I would do it. That's all I'm, want. That's all I'm asking from you because I think that's what God is asking you from you. Will you put your yes on the table? Lord, I don't know, but I'm willing. God will direct you. It might be that you fund it. It might be that you go. It might be that you help prepare. Whatever it might be, would you be a yes to God? Would you stand? Let's sing together.